Hello and welcome to the long-awaited part trois of our duo discussion with Shelf Love. My name is Morgan. I'm a co-host of Womance, for those of you who aren't familiar. And today I am happily joined by Jody Slaughter, Andrea Martucci, and my butter half, Isabeau Dasho from Womance, to discuss our separate discussion <laughs> of... Dreaming of You by Lisa Clayposs. It's going to be epic, so I want everyone to <laughs> strap in because we're going to get to the joyce of it all. If you haven't yet listened to both episodes, highly recommend that you hit pause and go ahead and do that now so that you can really dig into this juicy apple that we're about to crack open for you all. Or if you've already listened to the episode, it's cracking open nuts all the way down, according to Andrea and Jody. Yeah, absolutely no hand-holding. No, we're going to get right in. And so we were just discussing, we were having a hard time holding ourselves back because we're just so excited. We're like stallions trying to break the <laughs> confines of this barn we're in or something. Yes, um, muscular, virile. <laughs> yes. Podcast <laughs> the stallions. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we were thinking that kind of the framing device for our conversations was a meta conversation around podcasting. So why don't we also take this conversation in that meta conversation around romance novels themselves, because we both entered our respective conversations saying, it'll be really interesting to hear what, you know, in our case, Morgan and Isabeau have to say about this. And in Morgan and Isabeau's case, what Andrea and Jody have to say about this. With that, I'm going to put it out there, Morgan or Isabeau, whoever wants to jump in first, what is something that jumped out to you from our conversation that you found surprising or you were like, oh, that sparked something new? For me, the Joyce of it all, you guys wanted justice for Joyce so much. And while I agreed with all of the points about how Joyce deserves justice, like absolutely wronged. One of the things that was really fascinating to me in your discussion, because I thought she was a great villain. I loved her as a villain. I didn't need justice for Joyce in the same way that you guys did. But what you sparked for me was this idea that when Sarah Fielding returns Joyce to Lord Ashby, and both of you were like, this is horrific. This is awful. And in the conversation, I was like, yeah, that is a really fucked up and cruel scene. And then you guys are like, Derek Craven couldn't do it because he would have killed Joyce. And I was like, ooh, maybe he would have. I can see where we would come to that answer. But isn't it worse that Joyce is then delivered to the hands of her abuser slash jailer husband? And then in the conversation, you guys made this turn to like, what does that do for Sarah and what does that mean for her and like my very first thought was like the awful picture of Aunt Lydia from A Handmaiden's Tale came up and I 100% didn't want to see Sarah as Aunt Lydia but your discussion pushed those two 
into my brain pan in a way that I couldn't unsee. The discussion that you guys had about the dichotomy of what is allowable in terms of subverting the patriarchy really made me take a different look at Joyce. Yeah, likewise, I remember I wrote down, Andrea said something, you know, about like, why Joyce? Why not Joyce, I guess, would be more appropriate. And the fact that Derek is able to conceive at the end of the novel when he tenderly nurses on his wife's breasts, he is accepting her. I think, Andrea, what you said is Sarah gets to be all things, wife, mother, And it made me think about parody and how we actually think about equality in romance novels and like being seen as this ultimate goal of the HEA. And Dreaming of You really frames that in an interesting way because they get married. She's very confident in how she loves him. It's very obvious that he loves her. But our like concluding HEA is that he says, I love you. And then our prologue is that he can still objectify her <laughs> after she's given birth. He can still get it up even though she's a nursing mother. What a man. Yeah, exactly. And it made me think about her book, Matilda, wherein everyone imagines Matilda as a real person. Not just the sex workers, not just the ton. Everybody is insistent that Matilda must be a real person. And you pointed out that what seemed like a meta conversation on romance readership, which feels right. Everyone is always like, I don't identify with the characters. Like, I don't pull values from these books. People are very defensive of it as romance readers. But you can see these textures and romance writers are always telling on themselves and readers. And I think when you said you know, not she gets to be a person, but she gets to be a mother and a sexual being, right? Which are like the two main things we get to be as women. I was like, oh yeah, like this isn't actually about her super successful ongoing career isn't the prologue. The prologue is that she's had a baby and now she also gets to continue having sex with Derek. That's what I was thinking about in terms of the meta of it all. It's commentary, but I don't know if it's like even like a worthwhile discussion of I read your newsletter talking about Radway's idea that like moment when they were like, let's stop prioritizing like readership and the academy and start thinking about like real readers, which is really just a benefit to social sciences and allows them to talk about books. But whatever. The fact that we always exist on this defense that seems like pointless. It seems hopeless. And it's also like we're giving into the arguments of the academy when we insist that like we're it's not pornography and I'm not over identifying, right? This is pure fantasy, but it's not my fantasy. It's just like a fantasy that I'm reading. Why are you doing? <laughs> you know? And so that that's that was where I landed in that conversation. I think it is a point worth talking about very much from the perspective of a writer who is also a reader, even if I'm in a slump. But I know that Andrea talks about and explores this a lot and has historically the idea that we're all like sitting around tiptoeing, trying to convince everyone else and sometimes ourselves that we don't take anything real from this. We can very easily distinguish fantasy versus reality and in that being like it doesn't really mean anything to me and it doesn't really do anything for me or to me 
And I do think that, I mean, it's bullshit to me. To be frank, I mean, as someone who writes and as someone who reads, very much so, so much of what I read and write is like their direct descendants of my own desires, my own fantasies, unpacking all of my stuff. Like I think about the first book I wrote and published and not to talk about like myself, but like every time she mentions one of her books, she goes, and not to talk about myself. I'm like, go on. Yeah. And every time I'm like, shut up, just keep going. Not to make this my press tour. But (laughs) well, and so basically it's like a dark romance, quote unquote. And like where I was writing this and it's about like a woman who hires a hitman to kill her ex who's stalking her and then falls in love with the hitman. Right. And I'm like writing this and then it wasn't until like years later, I think honestly talking to Andrea, which is an underlying theme in my life where Andrea is like, oh, this explores really fascinating topics surrounding justice and your fantasy for like actually getting justice for wrongs committed against you and people. And I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And even in literally <laughs> writing what I was so clearly attempting to convey, which I think I did a decent job of, I wasn't super willing or open to hardcore examining that until I realized that it actually isn't wrong, bad, or embarrassing to be like, yes, I have these fantasies of being loved holistically. I have these fantasies of being like taken care of in whatever way that means for me, like all of that stuff. It's, it almost seems like we are afraid to admit that we do have wants and needs and that okay Andrea and (laughs) sorry we were literally talking about this two hours ago and then obviously admitting that in our own interior life is hard enough but admitting that like we actively seek out content and media to consume as a like I don't know a band-aid or something for fulfilling those There's something kind of excruciating about it. But I've been saying a lot recently that like your best self, your best pleasure, your best anything is on the other side of cringe. And we could all really use to stop worrying about being cringe. And just, yeah, I absolutely do dream that maybe one day I would meet someone and they would let me be a mother. And also I could be good sex. And then also I could have a career as well. That could be really fun and interesting for me. Yeah, like you're coming back from a lecture and he's like, I'm going to do you and I'm into your motherhood. Yeah, I love what you said about that. Our best selves are on the other side of cringe. And I think one of the things that you guys said in your episode at the end about this like meta commentary is, Andrea, you said your brain can't tell the difference between a character that you identify and the way that we read is 100% a part of how we learn empathy and express empathy and think about empathy. And like lots of people are doing studies on this. And so like for romance as a genre to be so deeply about feeling, but also to be like, I don't feel that strongly about it. And Morgan, when you said it's, it's not my fantasy, it's our fantasy. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. I would say like the thing that makes us defensive in the year 2023 is that these are regressive ideas. Like romance is giving us regressive fantasies. And I think you're so right, Jody. Like, of course, this is our fantasy. We're coming to this because we want that. 
But of course, our passions, of course, our desires are informed by how we've been socialized and all the shit that's been put on our shoulders. And there's no way like reading a romance novel, you're going to transcend that. It's way too deep. It's way too embedded. You can think about it and you can talk about it. You can consume it critically. But like, I think this thing where people get very defensive either by distancing themselves and saying, I don't know, they have some like cold intellectual relationship with a fucking romance novel and then people, which is early days of romance. And then <laughs> who say, I mean, we all go through that. And then people who say like, oh, actually, like Derek Craven's a good person or <laughs> even saying like, I think it's groovy the way like I agree. It feels good to read about even as a non-reproducing woman reading about someone who's like still desirous after going through this like <laughs> my mom calls it a bomb going off in your vagina and like still being desirable even after that catastrophe and it is framed as a catastrophe that's between the lines of this sex scene is being like but no like I know everyone thinks it's really bad but it's not it's still like feeding those bad faith assumptions that like destructive regressive idea but it still feels good right it's not like at the end of the book Derek Craven is like you're my equal and it makes no difference that you reproduced right he's like yeah. it's even better now <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Because she's, which implies that she's transcended somehow because she's a mother. Okay. So this made me think of literally on that, are these characters real to us? I put a tweet out where I was like trying to collect some ideas on this. And it was essentially like, I feel like I have the same relationship to characters as I have to like a friend of a friend. Okay. Like Jody will share stories about people in her life. And those people exist for me. And yes, I know that those people also exist in real life. But I've never met them. I will probably never meet them. But I have a sense of their motivation, their interests, how they go about their lives, things they would do, things they wouldn't do. And we totally have that same relationship with characters where if an author has done a good job and convinced us that this world exists, that these characters exist, we similarly can project outside of the text, what do we think this character would do in this situation? In fact, a lot of people speculate about those things that's like what fan fiction is essentially right and that's what i was gonna say that's fan yes. fiction baby that's where right. i come from if i'm not completely obsessed with them and anything that they're doing anything that they could possibly be doing to me i'm like oh if i don't care that much then i don't want it right again going back to the running gag about matilda it does feel to me that Claypus is making a comment about how characters in fiction or romance more specifically do feel real to us. But then when you think about how Derek lives within romance Landia as a character outside of the text, like both Morgan and Isabeau had heard so much about this character. It's like the friend of the friend or like the guy dating your friend that you've never met yet. And you're like, oh, everybody loves this guy. This guy is great. And then you meet him and he's like a cardboard cutout. So Morgan said he's a collection of anecdotes and yeah, he is. But all of those anecdotes are like a beautiful fantasy of wouldn't it be great if some person who isn't actually a fully fleshed human being and has his own desires and stuff, he just exists to like meet my pleasure, my needs. He loves me so much that he 
collects random objects that are associated with me and holds them close to his heart in his breast jacket pocket. Yeah. And it's, it, it, that's the thing. I would say after I've read a book, I think of these characters as a friend of a friend. And I like to think that I use what was given to me as a way of evaluating how they would move through the world. But when I'm in that cuddly third or I'm in that first person perspective, I'm fully wrapped around the usually the heroine and being like, oh, he likes me. Yeah, truly. Just to be completely vulnerable, like that is how it feels. And I, I fill I in agree. the gaps of whatever isn't given to me by the novel with what I would do in that situation or what I would want to have happen. And not to bring in a book that's not the book we're talking about, but I've been stressed out and I buried myself in Sarah J. Moss's <laughs> A Court of like Blank and Blank series. I don't know what it's called, but watching how that series progresses really show like the idea that we are not over identifying with these characters specifically and I think this is a unique trait maybe of the romance genre like it demands that you over identify in order to have the correct reading experience of a romance I wonder how much of this is an overcorrection of this desire to say that a romance is just as good as lit thick, right? Which of course it is, but lit thick, it doesn't require that you can have a character, a main character who is, you are in the mind of someone who is like a serial killer. And the purpose of that is not that you would be wow, I can really feel and love and imagine what it is to brutally murder someone. Those aren't the things that you're supposed to do in those reading experiences necessarily. It's not about identification or relatability. It's not about your fantasy, your desire or any of that. But I would argue that romance, it, I mean, it doesn't have to be if you don't want to read it like that. But I think that's a huge part of the beauty of the genre. It's that when I think about all of the books that are my favorite books, they take me on an emotional journey where I feel like I am experiencing the, as a Riverdale quote, the epic highs and lows of high school football. Like, And so I'm always like, I wonder how much of that is is a desire. In being seen as serious, it means wanting to divorce yourself from the emotionality of what we experience. It's like, do people read horror novels and come out of it and be like, I, yeah, I entered that book. I wasn't scared at all. When I think about people who read horror and I listen to them talk about it, they're always like, yeah, it scared the shit out of me. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. I read horror. The people who say I'm not even scared are the same people who leave a movie theater and are like, I wasn't even scared. Like they're, <laughs> they're trying to prove something. Are they the people who watched The Notebook and didn't cry at the end or said they didn't yeah. cry at the end? Come on. I don't justify that book or movie in any way, shape or form. It still emotionally impacted me. I think it also speaks to a larger societal problem that seems to be like screaming at all of us, which is like a lack of media literacy, like the inability to identify when a text is alienating you, i.e. Lolita, <laughs> versus yeah. indoctrinating you, i.e. dreaming of you by Lisa Claypaws. I think you are supposed to be there. You should assume that you're supposed to be there in a romance novel. And it's weird, like... 
the TikToker who makes like the book jail list where she's makes a list of like wretched things that happen in romance novels. And some of them are truly shocking. But she also has stuff on that list like in making love to Clippy, a woman gives Clippy a blowjob. And it's no duh. That's why you would read. That's why you would read Clippy fanfic. Yeah. What assumptions about Clippy are making this a problem? I, I don't think you are thinking expansively enough. I don't think you have the imagination to be saying these things. And I think dreaming of you and the utter cave that Derek Craven is, or like a bulletin board with post-its that you could fall in love with. I think it like begs for over-identification. Oh my God. The thing you just said about a bulletin board with post-its, I'm like, he is an ideal romance app profile. He's got the picture with him with a rescue kitten and he's got like, some yeah. quote from your favorite book. And like, he's got like the good pictures. Oh my God. He's like a perfect profile. He's a, he's a dating app profile. Oh my God. That's why people are fucking weird about him. Right? I, this was my takeaway from your episode. I similarly, I read Dreaming of You for the first time a month ago, however long ago that was. And I have spent years in romance Twitter hearing about this man, hearing people be like, Darren Craven would never, Derek Craven does this, Derek Craven doesn't do that. And so I'm like, okay, all right. And I feel, I feel nothing for him. I enjoyed the book and I felt like it was a very satisfying romance. And I love to swoon over a hero, very much so. Yes, yes. Sarah yes. Craven didn't make me swoon a single time. And that doesn't mean that it wasn't enjoyable to read him. I found him to be deeply hilarious and just <laughs> incredibly funny. I don't think I was supposed to, but I did. I feel nothing about him as a romance. The same way I feel about the hero in like The Kiss Quotient, whom I love so much. I think about him and I'm like, wow. I have a hard time understanding why, because it seems like he has all of the elements that I would be really into. There's something about him that doesn't ever really curl over for me. I'm still trying to figure out what it is. I think that's definitely part of it. That was certainly part of it for me. Because like when somebody's talked up this much and then they perfectly deliver as a romance hero, but there's nothing special. There isn't like this like nth degree. I'm thinking like there are a couple of Johanna Lindsay heroes that are like going to live inside of me forever. And I'm thinking particularly of, I can't even remember his name, but from The Flesh and the Devil, he's terrible. But I'm going to remember him forever. Derek Craven, don't get it. I don't understand this like Derek Craven would never that bubbles up on Twitter all the time. But I think part of it is that Joyce and Sarah are so fascinating in comparison. Ding, ding, ding. I think that's why he doesn't land is because he's next to these riveting characters. Even Perry and his mother. I know what Perry looks like. I know what he would do if someone cut him off in line at a grocery store, for example. Yep. Like she makes these, he, Derek Craven is surrounded by these like rich whole characters and it makes the vacuum apparent. Like he does swoony things like the glasses in the pocket. Of course, I wish someone kept souvenirs. <laughs> you know who else keeps souvenirs? Serial killers. <laughs> Taurus. Okay. Yeah. But I think there's something, and I wonder if it's not an intentional piece of craft, right? Like 
at this point in Claypass's career, she's realized I need someone who's pretty flexible. I need who Isabeau and I refer to as a Darcy instead of a Rochester. I need a projector screen. Is that an intentional choice? And I mean, this book blew up. So I think projector screens work for some people. There are people yeah. who are never going to understand the main character in Flesh and the Devil as an attractive person. And in fact, it's that thing where it seems like if you're not very media literate, you would read him and be like, this is an alienating person. But in fact, the book wants you to like want that. And like the way his justifications are set up are a lot more subtle and nuanced. It's not a big speech about like, I robbed graves. And then I had sex with women for investing. Like, I was born in a drain pipe. I was born. And I love, he can never tell her that he was born in a drain pipe because that would be self-pitying. Every other person has to tell her that he was born in a drain pipe. Because uh, it's still he, 1994. He's actually so pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> Like skulking at like swishing drapes, throwing bottles at walls. I'm like, dude, like a baby. I am so fascinated. Every time Morgan and Isabeau, you guys talk about the projector screen and the Darcy versus the uh, Rochester. Rochester, thank you. I have so many thoughts about this because, and everything you guys were just saying, where Derek Craven is a projector screen and people eat it up, but if he was this unique character and if this book was about the unique relationship between these two people then it's alienating then it's no longer about do you find this person romantic it's you have to embody a character who is not you and think about if they would find this person romantic but that feels like a larger conversation in romance where and i've talked about this with jody i've talked about this with a lot of people but it feels like books have gotten a lot less weird until you then get into like self-pub romance and especially all the interesting stuff going on with indie dark romance and mm -hmm. monster romance mm -hmm. and all of that stuff, where that is then like the opposite of what is going on in trad pub. Sorry, Jody Slaughter, traditionally published author. For the most part, not like everybody, obviously. But where there is this shying away from writing these like weird fucked up people because there is this understanding now especially the more we resist this idea that it could be our fantasy it's a fantasy okay the more that has to be the correct fantasy which has to be two yes, people yes, 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 who yes. are emotionally healthy <laughs> who never do a really bad thing and so we can't even get like a projector screen with like weird shit going on and we can't get like a rochester and a jane right yeah, you absolutely can't have a Rochester anymore. Like anybody who's like, I would fantasize <laughs> about breaking open your chest so that I can have the you that is in you. But in the killing of you, I'd kill the thing. That is also <laughs> like possess ob it. obtusely threatening to rape her if she tries All to leave. Time. Yeah, and to say nothing of the fortune teller scene, which I re-listened yeah, to. The cross-dressing oh fortune teller or like disowning his own child constantly. And I feel like, there are so many things about this book. Like, it's a really interesting book. But the second you start to be like, are these people good people? And should they be in love? And do they have a healthy relationship? It gets so freaking boring. But also this idea of like good person being like almost exclusively some kind of pop political 
yardstick. And not the idea that like people are complicated and can learn new things. And also like how relevant are his feelings on (laughs) abortions to this woman in Regency England? Like, why am I getting this fucking speech right now? (laughs) I have to hear this all the time, especially like drunk men at bars. I think because I don't shave my armpits, they're like, I'm about to get some points. A woman with hairy armpits (laughs) is about to tell me I'm a good person. Did you hear what happened in Florida? And I have to deal with that all the fucking time. (laughs) That must be a really heavy burden, Morgan. I don't like it. Do you know what it's like to have like white straight men in like polo (laughs) shirts try to prove that they're like politically progressive to you? Unsolicited? Jody gets it's not fun I have when I was actually visiting Andrea I took a lift in and the lift driver he was like this very nice older white dude made an absolute point at some point to be like yeah I voted for Obama and I was like cool that was so (laughs) long ago That was so long. That was so long and so many drone strikes ago. I don't like <laughs> millions of people did. Okay, millions of people did. And I don't know if I'm not sure if every listener knows this, but I look violently square. I look like Sarah Fielding, basically. In many ways, I don't have glasses, but put your glasses back on and I'll then put... you got it. <laughs> and then I got it. Yeah. So I don't get this guy. I don't know what you're talking you about. You should make like Isabel and get like a really intense back piece tattoo. She and wants then, to. <laughs> and she then wants you just bust it out. You I have to give it out slowly because I also look like violently square, as you can <laughs> see from my nerdy background. But when I wear a top that exposes even a part of my tattoo and I'm at bars, guys are like, hidden depths? Do you like guys with motorcycles? And it's like, not, in my experience, they're never hitting on me. They're never being nice to me. They're interested in what my approval can do for them. And that's how these pop political romantic hero relationships and speeches feel to me is I'm supposed to be like, wow, what a great person this hero is. And I don't think I'm actually supposed to think the hero is. I think I'm supposed to think the writer is or like the writer is envisioning themselves as imparting this very important world knowledge to me, which maybe is true. Like maybe some people read that stuff and it like blows their mind and they're like I've never thought of it that way before and I think that's really cool but I miss the kind of unselfconscious romance writing of Kindle Unlimited (laughs) of the 90s and back but what Lisa Claypaws has created in Dreaming of You is a very effective and very self-conscious romance novel and maybe this is like the point right? Like this is the shifting dreaming of you's success. Because I think about Lord of Scoundrels, which we just read, very rich, very complicated characters. And compared to Sarah, who we're supposed to identify with, and is just so relentlessly good and likable without being treacly, that's a complicated pirouette. And it lands. I wonder if this If Dreaming of You feels like a big deal and people think it's because it's Derek Craven, but in fact, it's because it is a shift in the entire romance industry. (laughs) I was telling Andrea earlier that I think we're in an overcorrection 
Mm-hmm. Period. Absolutely. But I also think that it's like a coin flip because the dark romances are getting more, I'm just going to say bizarre because I am a huge proponent of fucked up people in love doing fucked up things. In my hitman book, I do not make him stop being a hitman. Like at the end of the book, he literally comes home from murdering someone and is like, hello, honey, and isn't going to stop. I think that we're in an overcorrection 100%. But I also think that the KU, their response to this is boring is starting to look like, let's just have like outlandish shit. Not even let's let's mm-hmm. write characters because they don't often feel super character driven. It's action driven. It's, oh, he put the gun inside of her driven. You know what I mean? Well, like, but, um, like how come nobody, when people talk about this book, Sarah shoots a man in the first scene. I don't see that driving the conversation. I don't see Derek robbing graves as part of the conversation. I don't see Derek being a sex worker as part of the... There's all these, like, really interesting things that you don't see in a lot of books that are popping out. And I'm like, why did people grasp onto the non-character in here? It's like Sarah's book, but everybody grabs the projector screen as the most swoony romantic person ever... Maybe because what we've been talking about, like, well, Sarah was doing interesting things. So maybe that made people feel more inhabiting the character who's in love with Derek. And so therefore Mm -hmm. Derek kind of jumps out. I'm really interested in like how dark romance is promoted, where it's all about the wildest shit that happens. Like it's three or four screens of, and then like he pulled her tampon out and put it in his mouth or like something like that. And there's a few times where I'm like, okay, I just, I'm intrigued enough. I'm actually going to check this book out. And I start reading it. I'm like, this is the most boring book I have ever read in my life. You took the most interesting outlandish thing that happened and put it in the promo. There is nothing behind it. And I'm not saying all dark romance, but like, For sure, every time I've been like, well, I got to check this out. I'm just so disappointed. Like the sex is like not even kinky. Nothing's actually really happening, right? It's all if this promotion is outlandish enough to get somebody over, they're going to check this out. But it's so interesting that like this book has truly wild outlandish things that happen. And that's not what people talk about. Absolutely. Like the fact that there are like two attempted rapes. This what you're talking about reminds me of Dragonbound, where we were promised a dragon penis and never got one. (laughs) And we still haven't gotten one. We still haven't gotten one. We've been sent down that path so many times. Like, I've read some wild shit. I'm just asking for some dragon peen. Like I was promised. I don't know what a dragon's capacity to consent. You could make a dragon that does not have a capacity for consent or you could make a dragon who is actually a human that's world building baby it should be up to the author (laughs) if i'm going to read about dragon bay i want him to have a bad dragon dick correct that's the right reaction humanoid no that's not why we're doing this then what's the point this is the thing no one says about priest by Sierra Simone. He's never in the collar when they're doing it. He is never in his regalia. He does use the accoutrements of But he's never in his... But he's like, I'm like a casual regular guy who's a priest. No. That's fair for Sinner, too. She's never... I know that she can't wear the habit because she's not... She doesn't actually become a nun. nun. Because they step up to the line 
and they like put their toe over like, oh, am I going to do it? And they never step over. Do you know who never hedged? Joanna Lindsay. Never. <laughs> that B went for it. But that's also like to get back to dreaming of you. That's what's so wild about the fact that Sarah Fielding is literally a murderer in the first scene. And that everyone's just fine with it. And I never heard that. And all of the years I've been hearing about Derek Craven this and Derek Craven whenever. I've never heard Sarah Fielding killed a man in an alley. You know what I mean? They just, they left, just him. left him. And it never, never came back up. He's ever. still in that alley. He's greased between the cobblestones. <laughs> Justice for the alleyway guy. The face slasher. He had a family, probably. Joyce Essentman. He's just a hired goon. Yeah, he's just like a hired... He's, Damn, I, I have to feed my 11 Victorian children. Wait, I'm going to yeah. love some guy. <laughs> maybe he was the stable man in her husband's manor who she seduced into doing this, but he only did it because he loved her. And <gasps> oh, if we oh. want to talk about are these people real and can we imagine things in this world, there you go. Yeah, I want to write Joyce fan fiction so badly. I love evil, quote unquote, women. I love female villains so much. That's because even growing up, I always liked the bitch, like romantically. In media, Regina George, I get it. I understand. Because they have more fun. They do interesting things. Yes. They've got, like, bite. They don't have to be nice. But isn't that interesting? Okay, the fact that Derek is a projector screen and what that says about romance, you would assume that the projector screen character would be what people who write fan fiction gravitate towards. But that's very rarely the case. People who write fan fiction tend to gravitate towards these fully realized characters. And so there isn't a really stable argument to be made that it's because he's interesting to think about <laughs> like he's interesting to imagine in other stories and other pathways like something else is going on with Derek and I do believe that his construction feels a lot more familiar today than it does when you're reading like classic romance like I would say Kathleen Woodowis her characters in general are pretty flat but they are consistently flat Derek is shockingly <laughs> vacuous because he's surrounded by so much light and color and feature. And it's interesting. And like that this book, which feels like a platonic ideal romance, but isn't that great. It's not transcendent. And thinking about dark romance and how you get these almost like marketing tent poles that are like, you put a gun inside of her. I feel like maybe marketing is part of it, right? Because social media, you can read a really egregious quote. And then people will buy your book because it sounds fascinating. But Joanna Lindsay did say that she started every book with a sex scene. <laughs> that was the first thing she wrote. And then she built her stories around like, how did these two characters get into this sex scene? And I wonder what the core scene was for Dreaming of You. And I think maybe that core scene speaks to its appeal. The supping. The supping. <laughs> okay, do you know what scene truly I can never forget? So, by the way, we didn't talk about this in the episode, Jody. I don't think. I wrote a 20-page research paper when I was 19 on Dreaming of You. What? Yeah. I 
showed it to Jody. She didn't want to read it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, in my I, defense, uh, I read a lot of things that Andrea wrote. I gave her a lot of things of mine to of read it. while she was And here. I loved every single one of them with my whole heart, but I didn't get to that one. A, oh, you are such a good friend, Jody. Oh my God. Jody is like self-promoting and that's an issue, but you're literally making her read your <laughs> undergraduate <laughs> essay. There's one thing, Andrew was like, do you want to read this? And we sat in her den and she stared down the barrel of my face the entire time well while drinking of an old-fashioned just like yeah. lounging on the couch just well, like what part are you at oh that's a good one yeah literally yes. literally oh. okay so i wrote a research paper on this and look my research paper does not stand the test of time but i have been thinking about this book for a long time for context that was 17 years ago the thing that always stood out to me about this book was when Derek goes to Tabitha, one of the sex workers who works in his establishment, and he says, just let me hold you. And the reason he does this is because she bears a physical resemblance to Sarah. What stood out to me is Derek has given up hope that he can ever be with Sarah. And this is the closest he can get to giving himself the experience of holding her and I always believed that they had sex and that he had just he wasn't saving himself for this relation it was gone it was never going to happen he had cut himself off from this ever happening and it was literally him building like a virtual reality scenario for himself with this other woman and to me as a young person a young naive person who was literally a virgin the idea that some guy would be so obsessed with me that if he couldn't have me he would fantasize about it in such a corporeal way and it's like weird it's super weird but I hesitate to call it romantic but it is so stimulating it is romantic and yeah, it's 100% <laughs> romantic no question I'm lying over your grave and I'm gonna lie here forever type stuff right there yeah virgin or no like that hit the way that scene is presented to us is via a story being told by the sex worker. So it is a story within a story. And she does that silly, like cockney fanatic writing with it too, which further distances you. But that also feels like incredibly evocative of the experience of consuming romance. It's almost like a secret because that sex worker, Tabitha, shows up to go see her parents or whatever who don't know what she does in London. And so there's that part of it. And then I know this whole character's backstory <laughs> and still she's the one telling us about this thing with Derek. We don't even get him. like, But like, how would he tell Sarah? I don't think that's like a confine that like this romance hero could have transgressed. But you're right to say that like the way in which that mediation of that scene is given to us feels like we're then inculcated in it which then makes it all the more stimulating that's a great point morgan and tabitha literally i bookmarked this scene because i knew i wanted to talk about it and yes he came to my bed he told me not to say anything no matter what he did i mean yeah and, this is what he says then mr quick craywin turned the lamp down and took me against him let me hold you sarah he says i need you sarah all night long it was, in pretending I was you. It's because we look alike, you and me. That's why he did it. 
She shrugged with a touch of embarrassment. He was gentle and sweet about it, too. In the morning, he left without a word, but there was still that terrible look in his eyes. And it's almost like you literally, through Tabitha's storytelling, you get to experience that it happened. And for Sarah, it's like she now has this ghost of an experience that didn't actually happen to her, but now she feels like she had with Derek. And if we were together, he would be gentle and sweet and he would hold me and he would tell me he just needs me and ah, just, ah. Uh. Yeah, it's not Derek head in hand. It's like completely divorced from the, and then her immediately having to comfort him and be like, it's okay. And yeah, she gets to have the, what it must be like with the anguish of, I also read it as he slept with her. Without the, it, there's a little bit of the anguish of, oh gosh, don't, uh, uh. I think it would have been super less impactful if Derek had come to her and been like, I took Tabitha and then he started throwing bottles against the wall because that's what he would have done and thrown himself out of a five-story window or something. I don't know. Yeah. Tabitha makes no demands of Sarah and how she's going to feel about it and how she's going to react. And therefore, there's no demands on the audience to like pass judgment on it. And so we're allowed to just be like, <laughs> and feel good about it. Which is incredible. It's incredible. I'm like, even in writing today, I'm like, who does that? Who does that? I think about that scene a lot. And I'm like, I'm not even confident that had I been attempting to like convey that I wouldn't have turned it into a deeply emotional, like emotionally wretched moment for Derek and Sarah. We get to be, this is good, man. She's so good, like master craftsman, really. Before we give her too much credit, stuff. I would like to remind you of E.L.D. me, Mr. Crowen. Listen, E.L.D. me. Not, she was perfect. It's not, it, it's not that transcendent. No, it's not. It's very good. Like, very good. Wait a second. Wait a second. I feel, messy. hold on though, but Morgan, you're bringing your intellectual brain to this. <laughs> all of us in that moment our intellectual self was not present we were there and in that moment that's how tabitha speaks we don't have to think about how ridiculous it is we're transported the way you do that is you say tabitha and her broken cockney or something and then you write it out in the normal way <laughs> the normal way what is the normal <laughs> the normal number of apostrophes Andrew. Lisa Claypus cares about the verisimilitude of whatever time period she's writing. She is hewing to the she rules. Was, she was like, I don't know. This is fair. She was like, I don't know if my readers are going to understand what a Cockney accent is. <laughs> Does oh, she understand? Oh. We have to go back to Lisa Claypus, the crafts person. It goes back to Tabitha isn't somebody Derek can fall in love with right? She speaks in this Cockney accent, which is coded as being broken English. The text very explicitly makes a point to say, that, and we know that in Then Came You, which was the book before this, that Derek first made an appearance, he speaks with a Cockney accent very similar to this. Between that book and this book, he loses the Cockney accent. It only comes out when he's like deeply emotional, i.e. letting go of his sort of like intellectual control and bearing his soul, all of that stuff. You guys have actually read a book where a character had a Cockney accent who 
was fallen in love with, right? But I feel like in this world that Cleopas has created, Tabitha having this like really overt Cockney accent actually serves a function to be like, she's just some sex worker. He can't fall in love with her. Having sex with her doesn't count. Yeah, it defangs her. It makes her not a threat. Exactly. Yeah, it's ridiculous yeah. on purpose. Oh, and that's why this is a very good podcast. Shelf Love is a very good podcast. Nailed it. I think, yeah, that, that's got to be it. As annoyed as I was. <laughs> but doesn't this novel feel like conscious about its craft? I'm thinking about that scene and I'm thinking about Derek himself. Like it feels like the choices are there on the page, right? Which, of course, all choices are there on the page. But they feel traceable in a way that I don't think they feel in every novel. I don't think they feel that way in every Clayposs novel. I'm trying to think of the last Clayposs book I read. It was one of the, like, echoes of the season series, Daughter of the Devil or something like that. I don't know. It doesn't matter. And I was reading it, and I was expecting the Clayposs experience. And for some reason, all of her brushstrokes were so visible to me, but I didn't get the same impression of the experience that I was expecting, where I was just like, okay, I see what you're doing. You're hitting the mark that you need to hit here, but I don't feel what I was expecting to feel. And I don't, I don't know what it is. Like the last eight books of hers that she's written that I've read, it's like each one kind of gets more, I'm like, okay, yep. And then you're keeping things moving in the classic Clayfus way. I feel your craft. I feel you echoing things that you've done before. And I hate to bring it back, but I feel like it's like she's trying to correct some of the weirdness of, oh, I can't go super weird. but So I'll try to hit the beats, but it's something essential has been taken out. And by the way, when, I say, when I'm talking about this, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying bring back like offensive, non-politically correct shit. I literally just mean like weird, bonkers, off the wall stuff. How dare you say that to Jody, who has written a book about a murderer falling in love? Wait, so I'm sorry. Is that politically correct? Yes. <laughs> I, see, I don't find hitmen as like a politically correct thing. I guess it's more like to go back earlier to the conversation, like how does this character feel about abortion? I'm not saying I need to know how a character feels about an abortion, but like, if there was a character on page who was morally reprehensible in a way I would consider morally reprehensible on the stance of abortion, i.e. they were like, you slattern. I'd be like, fuck you. And like, I, I wouldn't want to read that book. But if a character like killed somebody, I'm like, okay. Funny that you should mention that because it seems like Derek Craven's views on abortion in this particular text, as they pertain to Joyce, aren't particularly progressive and or inclusive of Joyce's choices. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> that that's fair. That's the thing is like, this feels silk on silk. Like this book like drifts past itself and that makes it a very pleasant reading experience. But it also means like if you start to elbow things, it gets weird. And like all of the, everything is visible. The fibers like, start to fray. They're too delicate yeah. to handle too much handling. Yeah. Or like, you know how like you can see everything through silk? You just fall right off that bed. Yeah. <laughs> silk underoos and silk why sheets. Did and you, like, why did you like why did you bother with a flat sheet? It's never gonna stay on. <laughs> it's never gonna stay on. Silk sheets. No. He, he has a I do love he? that he's gaudy. I do he love is that. Gaudy. Oh, he's so gauche. He's just like new money. 
he just likes yeah. nice things in gin and like velvet drapes. Like we don't have to like, I'm like, and the whole he's unpleasant about abortion. It's because this book is unpleasant about abortion because the sex politics of this book are really regressive. Like I don't pin that on Derek. I pin that on this text hates Joyce and Joyce is one of the most interesting characters. And to your point, Andrea, about this, like when you take the weird out, what you're really taking out are the nuance. Right. There's something so compelling about Joyce, like not only her backstory, but also her fucked up choices. And the line that she has that I was like, I knew that I would think about Joyce long after I've forgotten Derek Craven, if Twitter ever lets me, is that she's like, I'd rather have you hate me than be indifferent. And I was like, this bitch fucking gets it. And it's like, yes. (laughs) Like that's Clapis, right? I would rather scar your face and have you hate me and look at your fucked up face forever then have then face the idea that you could forget me like every time you look in the mirror you see me i will be gone i will be forever gone and you will see me you will never ever forget me i have made a mark on you not just on your soul or your heart on your literal physical body every time your wife looks at you she'll see me too it's oh my god (laughs) that's it's yeah okay so those insights those character insights in order to have insights about people and how complicated and messy our emotions are you have to have characters who are complicated and messy yeah correct yeah and that feels related to the issue we're talking about. And like you said, Isabeau, like lacking nuance. When you have these characters who are like, good, 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 good. Like maybe they make a mistake, but they're still good people. <laughs> how are they going to have these complicated insights about the human experience or like, I don't know, like how messed up we are. We're all messed up. And, and the other frustrating thing about this kind of neutering maybe of romance is that it is reactionary to a bad faith critique of the genre to begin with, which is the idea that like these books are bad because they're politically bad, but the books are just a reflection of the larger system that the writers and the consumers are existing in. Right? Like no one woke up. (laughs) No one was like born from the sea foam of Zeus's jizz or juices Ziz, as the case may be. And then was like, do you know what? I want to write a novel where a woman has sex and orgasms and oral sex even. But do you know what it needs to start with? Getting hit in the back of a head and raped in a carriage first. That's how we're going to start it. This is what I think romance should be. I, Kathleen Woodowis, like empress of romance, who is now the only thing that has brought this into existence, right? Like it's a bad faith critique. It seems like there was like, finger wagging at the consumers of romance right and then we all were like oh you're right you're right I'm not doing that anymore I'm making a consecrated stand and it loses like the unselfconscious like it loses its space as an area that is about just being transparent about desire and joy and longing and angst and how good angst can feel it's a bummer (laughs) The fact that I know that romance as a genre, however you can describe that, people within romance, there is a constant craving for acceptance and respectability in the larger media environment. And 
this feels like a bid for that where it's like, oh, but if we bring the genre in line, oh, romance isn't like it used to be in 1972 with Kathleen Woodowis. Look how far we've come. Look how different the genre is now, whether that's true or not. And that's uh, a discussion about politics, not craft, yeah. not words on the page, not character building, not anything that we would say makes a good book. But I, and I, but I think that like in the 70s, 80s and 90s and 2000s, like maybe it's the internet age, right? Where the barriers to these niche communities having this wider exposure were much greater, right? If I wanted to talk about romance with somebody, I had to like find somebody I could talk about romance with. I couldn't just log on to a website and easily find other people. Before that happened, the unselfconsciousness was like, nobody's going to, nobody outside of this who doesn't get it is going to come check this out. There was no expectation of outsider eyeballs being critical. They already have made up their mind about what this is. They're never going to actually open a book and look at yeah. the cover. And that's the thing. It was like, if they're never going to open up the book and they're never going to be critical of it, then they're never going to be critical of me, a person who gets a lot of fizzy good feelings from this Joanna Lindsay. Like, they'll never see. <laughs> and I don't think anyone was self-conscious about being turned on by that until people were intentionally being like, you like that? I think this is a good point to plot it because up until the internet, especially the ways that authors interacted with audiences or like the wider media, like think of any profile that Daniel Steele did. It involves her very weird, beautiful desk, her thousands of shoes, her Paris apartment, and the fact that she drinks two pots of coffee and only eats chocolate and writes for 26 hours a day. Or like Johanna Lindsay and her long flowing hair, her weird Hawaiian retreat. Kathleen Woodowis was all about what a good mother she was. This Nebraska yeah. Plains mom and like how she found time to write. And I think the separation of author did a lot of interesting work in terms of decreasing wider media's bid. We can't take you seriously because look who's fucking writing here. And so we, we don't have to take you seriously because you're not a Jonathan Franzen or a John Steinbeck or like whatever white male dude. And they weren't interested in that. But somehow now with the age of the internet and like where people are finding each other, there's this idea where it's, I want more people to be about this. I want romance to be for everyone because romance is for everyone. And it's like, ooh, I don't know that it was or ever meant that for itself. Nothing is for everyone. <laughs> Nothing is for everyone. It's a thing that I have an issue with as a writer. The way that it seems like we're going about this is a, you have to be like liked and likable. It means that you as a person also have to lose any bite that yeah. you have, and we all have it. The way that Andrea and I speak to each other when we are on the phone with each other is obviously very different than anything either of us might fucking tweet. And she has even a little more freedom because she's not trying to sell books. But like, we're all seem to be like trying to have this weird hegemony where we're all like middling we're all mild we have mild mm -hmm. personalities mm -hmm. our books are mild Ugh. yeah it sucks you can't actually be spicy ever <laughs> it's like everybody has to be like jane from pride and prejudice a fence yeah. sitter isabel i think you talking about the historicity of 
writers and their persona, public personas, and Jody, your perspective as writer who now has a public persona. I'm seeing like, yes, Barbara Cartland was an eccentric, but she was an eccentric because she was landed gentry. Like when we look at like <laughs> romance authors and how they marketed themselves, right, via their author photo and their bio, like taking Lisa Claypos, it mentions that she was Miss Massachusetts. And it mentions that she has a poli-sci degree from a very good school, right? It's still making these bids for legitimacy. Like, I don't think John Steinbeck's back of the book was like, here are the charities he supports. <laughs> you know, and not. like, here's where he went to school because it like spoke for itself. But romance authors have never been allowed to speak for themselves, right? They've had to have these ancillary accomplishments. And now Jody, as you point out, that sounds like just of a kind with what the expectation is now, which is entirely about a value system of white supremacy and patriarchy, but it feels like it's imposed much more on romance writers than any other group of writers because they're seen as illegitimate immediately. Right. But I feel like the big romance personalities that we're thinking of, they were playing characters. And call back to She-Devil, the whole character of Mary, what's her face? She is literally playing a character of a romance novelist in her own life. And you think about Barbara Cartland, her ensembles, I feel like were a costume, like literally a costume. I don't know if she wore Her entire actual home was pink. But that's deeply bizarre and even yeah. interesting. Wait, she was like a method actor. She was living that performance. And Lisa Kleypas, Miss Massachusetts, she's positioning herself as the smart beauty mm -hmm. queen. So there's yeah. a little bit of glamour, but it's also like you have to take her seriously. I think romance authors today, because of that accessibility factor, the goal is to be like, I want to be your friend. And to be yeah. your yes. friend, you can never be the mean girl who is saying something you disagree with and your books yeah. can't ever. It's, oh, my God, like my friend wrote this fucked up book with these fucked up characters. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, but it was like a repositioning, like instead of being the unattainable celebrity who is kind of glamorous and over the top, now it's like the move is accessibility, which also means fitting in. In terms of like celebrity, it's a through line of what it means to be someone who is popular or a celebrity now. I miss the old days of celebrity where they weren't pretending to be just like us. You're not just like us. Obviously you're like a human being and your heart beats the same and we all have the same value. Yeah. But you sitting around pretending, I'm just lounging in my $300 million home in my pool, but I'm just like you. I like peanut butter too. Isn't that so wild? It really annoys me. I don't need to be relatable to you to like my work. Also, that men works. don't have to be relatable in the same way. Yeah. Jennifer Garner, like the thing that you just described, every time she's like, I like peanut butter and this is what I do in my vegan cookies yeah. in her $3 million kitchen. <laughs> I'm just like, the... Yes. Skincare products cost more than my mortgage. Like I, I have to say, I think this is an expectation of men as well. Like Jeremy Strong, he's a super intense person and everyone just ripped him to shreds. And I was like, I think you have to be like this to be a very good, successful actor, especially if you came from a genuinely working class background like he did. 
you have to be the fucking worst. That's the only way you can climb up. And yeah, and like Marlon Brando, he was a very good actor because he was a very bad person. He had to live on an island by himself with a pet chipmunk. That's the way his existence outside of film made sense. It should be okay. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's allowed to be fucking weird as fuck anymore judith mcnaught i think is a great example of someone who was openly vitriolic to her fans the minute the internet existed (laughs) she started she someone messaged us on instagram it was like my husband grew up down the street from her in dallas and she used to walk her i think her weimariners or her afghan hound something fancy outside of the driver's window of her jaguar she would drive very slowly holding that's real that's not a character and <laughs> she didn't want to be like touched by plebes yeah that's the kind of person who conceives of whitney my love i'm sorry it is i but, agree but i think we're just talking about the panopticon of living in the internet age where uh-oh we're like panopticon alert but okay but that is the world we're living in where we're under constant surveillance and so even movie stars understand that even if they understand they have to have these ridiculous lifestyles to maintain the movie star look that they can't actually admit that's what they're doing because then that starts to make them like inaccessible in a way all of these personalities that we're talking about where we're like oh my god that's wild like i bet there are all things that literally every one of us do And we're not movie stars. We don't have expensive skincare routines. We don't have $3 million kitchens, whatever. We're maybe not like the most eccentric people on earth. We all do weird things where if somebody was like watching us in our living room or wanted to write an article about us that made us sound more interesting than we are would be the thing that people talk about. The unedited versions of any of our days, I'm sure could spin up a really fascinating profile about us that make us just sound weird the last thing i tweeted on jody slaughter's author count is me like oh it's time for outside with a pbr the actual like tea on that is that i like was heartbreakingly sad that day that i sat outside on the patio for three hours and crushed like two and a half tall boys and just baked in the sun and was just like crying and i was like i should capture this for the internet, because I haven't tweeted, and I'm like <laughs> wiping tears, like I'm just drinking a beer. Real. You should have done has been like I'm very sad because not enough people are buying my book, and I try so hard, and I'm what? getting attacked by the algorithm, <laughs> and that's why this is happening to me. You can go one of two ways. You could fake your death. <laughs> if she did that, I wouldn't be friends with her. But I feel like the romance novels we read are doing the same thing where they are yeah. like, they're aware yeah. of the panopticon of criticism. That's so. That if, mm-hmm. that if they do anything weird, it's like the bracing for, if I have my character make this questionable choice, there's going to be a review. And because I'm too online, I'm going to become aware of that criticism. Like you think about all these authors writing 40, 50 years ago. When would they ever encounter a critical response to every little thing? Maybe a critical response like big picture, like people don't like your book, says the editor to you, like the books aren't selling or whatever. But you would never get into the minutia, which now I think everybody is just policing their own behavior online, like we're talking about authors, but also policing the content of their book to fit into this like 
weird idea of perfection that we're all feeling like we're held to in our relationships, in our lives, our consumption habits. Yeah. It, this reminds me of your discussion when you were like, I want to know what the depravity of, yeah, yeah. of Joyce is. And it's, it feels like an intentional choice and a craft choice to not be specific because I feel like Joanna Lindsay, for example, would have been very specific. But if you're vague about it, you allow the book, I don't know, maybe like some kind of perceived timelessness, but also allows other people to fit in their own values. And I think that dreaming of you as an early practice in restraint <laughs> in romance novels, I think one of the reasons it has so much staying power is, yeah, it's a good book, good things, interesting things happen. But I think it looms much larger than even the sum of its parts. And I think that's because when the book was published was at a time when future influencers were getting into the genre. And so this book would have had a big effect on them. And it also is vague enough that it can withstand an existence in our a, a support system. Like I feel to take complete credit, like Scarlett Peckham telling us Whitney, my love is the single most influential <laughs> novel I read. I was pretty impressed that she would say that out loud and <laughs> talk about it with us and be vulnerable about it because <laughs> it is such a trip, but it's also a trip paratextually. But I think dreaming of you is just restrained enough that it speaks to our current moment in the panopticon. I think you're right, Andrea. I'm always right. And thank you for calling me an influencer. <laughs> no, but no, like seriously. Yeah. You think about who's driving a lot of the cultural conversations today in romance. It's people between the ages of like 30 and 50. And yeah. where were we 17 years ago? There is that like bell curve with social media where influencing went from institutions to individuals. And now it's back into institutions because the individuals have become institutionalized. And the people who were for that bright, shining moment, individuals, they were largely starting their romance journey at around this time, at least earlier in Clay Foss's career. And I think that's why she looms so large. I think maybe it's like pure coincidence, but there's also something about dreaming of you that like begs flexibility. Yeah. I actually feel like suddenly you stands the test of time much better but I don't see nearly as much conversation about it. I wonder why in the context of what you just said, because maybe it is because it is more specific and it is a little bit less of a projector screen overall. I think that maybe some people like it and some people don't, and it makes it a little bit more controversial as opposed to Dreaming of You, where a lot of people have read it and it's like a good solid book. And there's not a ton of things about it that in the current environment make it like, taboo to read and talk about. When we discuss Devil in Winter, we said it doesn't really matter that he threatened rape in the last book because he actually commits rape in this book. Like their first sex scene, she's unconscious when it starts. She's like sick and asleep. So she's like in some weird sort of laudanum yeah. trance, but she is having a sex dream about him that then becomes corporeal. That she realizes is actually happening. Oh, and... Which is like something you would expect to happen in a book that predates Dreaming of You. Because Devil in Winter and Dreaming of You have so many parallels. And it feels like a real, I don't know, like pushing a limit, testing a, 
it seems like a stress test of some kind in hindsight. And I hate that look, by the way. Like, (laughs) but the thing is, I don't feel so passionately like against many of Clavis's books. And that one I actually hate for reasons where I'm like, why are people romanticizing like these things that this guy does? Like, it's really messed up. But there's a specificity to it. And yeah, it is this like weird thing where I think that was published in like the early 2000s, right? Like 2005-ish, maybe. I remember buying it at the bookstore when it was new. I had my own money and ability to get to a bookstore at that time. So what is that? That's like over 10 years after Dreaming of You. She's a better writer and she's being more specific with her characters. But Mm -hmm. then holding on to some of these things where like Derek Craven seriously would never, I hate to use that sentence construction here. Derek Craven would never do that, right? Even though there's a lot of like Mm -hmm. weird attempted rape stuff in the book, it's not Derek Craven doing that. But then Sebastian St. Vincent does it. And on the one hand, I'm like, oh my God, that was a misstep. And on the other hand, he's so many people's favorite character or that's their favorite book. So what does that tell us? It tells us way more interesting stuff than any of those like pro-choice speeches (laughs) that take place in the Victorian area. Alcohol's, the alcohol's episode, the idea of this awful, wretched man isn't going to hurt me. But even when he does hurt me, it's like he only does it because he loves me so much and he just Mm -hmm. can't hold back. This is like such a controversial take. I haven't read this book. Historical romance and I have a fraught relationship. It's And it's not even necessarily for like political reasons. I just straight up have a hard time getting into it. I didn't have a hard time getting into Dreaming of You. So I've made an effort to read more Clipus actually. Um, I might read this one next because now I'm interested to see <laughs> what it is. But I'm interested in like power dynamics a lot. And I'm not someone who is of the mind that a power dynamic wherein, if we're using this in like heteronormative terms, wherein the heroine is in a position where she has less power. I'm not saying it's good, but it is not to me an inherent turnoff. And sometimes it is in fact an actual turn on. Because we've been socialized because of the world we live yeah. in yes. to find being submissive a turn on. So why yes. is it surprising to us when it is? Yeah, exactly. And because we're not supposed to like it anymore. Yeah, that's, not, where, like, yeah. that's where the supersede comes in against the acculturation. Haven't, yeah. But we, we haven't, haven't right? Because gotten rid of it in our head. Because not only in our head, but also in our society. Right? Yeah, exactly. Hillary Clinton says in 1992, women's rights are human rights. She also very famously says, I'm not the type of woman who bakes cookies. Literally the next year has to come out with the first White House cookbook. I don't think we're really past that moment in terms of like the expectations that women are constantly navigating. And well, Trump didn't have to do anything. <laughs> she was such a good mom for staying in New York for that whole year because Barron didn't want to leave school. And so, yeah, you're right she didn't have to do anything and in fact wore a shirt telling us that do you even care or whatever like crazy but even still like the way the media and other commentators talked about Melania was in the mom wife box of the role of first lady and so like all of that what you're just saying about I don't find it a turn off in fact I find it a turn on and like exploring power dynamics which takes us all the way back to this idea that like when we flatten romance into a middle and like we take out the fun, weird, exploratory 
Morgan, you call it like transparent, like id, it gets less fun. The id is important. The id is everything. Our ids are not being fed. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's a great tag. I think it's important that there are people who would get a sense of superiority from being like, I'm not turned on by that. And I don't like those books. And there are also people who would defend their preference for that book by saying, it's just a book. Quit making a big deal about it. But neither of those things are true. (laughs) And it's way more interesting and productive for understanding romance and maybe getting romance taken more seriously to say two things are true. This is a problem and it's okay that I like it. (laughs) Like, It's so hard for people to have a conversation that is expansive about romance specifically. Because it seems like the second we reach out, there's something that like is institutionally, structurally holding us back. Whether it's the rah-rah tone of most romance reviewers, whether it's the constant policing of one another's opinions. It's just, there's so much here and we sell ourselves so short because we over-identify with these characters and we hold ourselves and our opinions as so precious as to not be controversial or up for debate. Like, the world we live in is problematic. What are we going to do? Just stop living in the world? No, we got to live here. There's no ethical consumption under capitalism, blah, 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 blah. It's just the world we live in. A lot of the things that are like weird and interesting are the things that make us awesome and unique and interesting. It's entertainment. We're reading it to be entertained. And I think part of that is to be taken seriously. We can't also just accept that it's entertainment. No, but it's like actually not problematic at all. So my entertainment isn't problematic and therefore it should be taken seriously. It's like, how about we take it seriously in that it is a thing worth discussing and it is a valid entertainment vehicle just like literally anything else it's no better it's no worse it's not feminist it's not anti-feminist it's not more thoughtful and interesting or more liberatory than literally anything else it is a reflection of the society we live in and some authors do more interesting things than others whatever it's it just is it's morally neutral and I would love for our engagement with it to be more morally neutral. Where, like, even if, like, we get fired up about something. Okay. Oh, I hate Devlin Winter. I hate that guy. I'll still talk about it. I still read the book. I might go back and reread the book because it was entertaining. It seems like there's some kind of right and wrong in game that we're all trying to work towards whenever we talk about a romance novel. And, like, whether or not the book is good or bad has to do with whether or not it's right or wrong. And we can't possibly have that relationship with every kind of text. And so also, anyway. But also imagine <laughs> if we as individuals were only valued until we did one thing wrong. We made one incorrect action. And mm-hmm. now we are garbage people. Who if you're on the internet, that, that is that's, the case. Yes. That's how it's. Yeah. Well, right. That's the fear of the surveillance where it's like, I'm not going to write a book that's going to offend anybody, which means that if you write a book for everyone, it's basically for no one. And so I'm so happy to free all writers by saying, if you write a book that's inoffensive, I will choose to hate it. So you might as well, (laughs) you might as well go all in. Well, I think we cracked that nut one open. 
think, I think we just solved Romancelandia. Via we did it! By Lisa Clayton. On these podcasts, we are somehow solving literally every single one of society's ills. So why then is nothing changing, Andrea? Answer that. Would only that. And maybe as people who continuously send our voices out onto the internet on public channels for other people to listen to and think about, maybe it's even interesting for us to think about switching our goal from even necessarily changing people's minds to literally just like, I don't know, did you enjoy the conversation? Even if you turn around and read a problematic book tomorrow and don't think critically about it, I don't know. Did you enjoy listening to this podcast? I hope so. We did it. Yeah, the important thing is that you love us, even if you don't love the book. <laughs> yes. Yes, love us. Love me. <laughs> love Choose me. me. Choose me. And romance. Choose shelf love and romance. And danger. Fuck all the others. Yes. <laughs> no, not really, but also yes. <laughs> Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time. <laughs>